0: Thank you for joining us today, and my name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Josh Bloom is our guest today. He is a researcher, scientist, and president of the American Council on Science and Health, which is a pro-science consumer advocacy group that goes after what they think is bad science, Josh and I don't agree on everything, but we do agree that the government's response to the so-called opioid crisis has left millions of people in chronic pain suffering unnecessarily. Josh has done a lot of great work debunking the CDC's numbers relating to the opioid crisis and exposing how, as more draconian measures are instituted to restrict access to pain medicines, more people in pain are suffering and more people are dying of overdose. We talk about the real cause of the opioid crisis and how those in power and those who seek to benefit from power have manipulated the data to present a false narrative to the American people. This is a very emotional issue for me since I've been in chronic pain for over 30 years and have seen firsthand how people in pain are being treated in the current opioid hysteria in America today. The FDA has come out recently and made an announcement about advising doctors not to force taper people on pain meds, which is a step in the right direction, and we'll cover that in future episodes. In my opinion, that's coming out two years, too late, and doesn't go far enough. I exercise my health freedom by taking Kratom for my chronic pain. Kratom isn't for everyone, and I recommend everyone do their own research to see if it's right for them. That's exactly what I did, and I found it extremely helpful for helping to improve my overall well-being and help to make living with chronic pain easier on a day-to-day basis. The only Kratom I trust is from Urban Ice Organics, which you can find at naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics with organic spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X dot com. Use the promo code CHRONICALLYHUMAN20 with no spaces to get 20% off your next order. Urban Ice Organics is also offering a great full-spectrum CBD oil now. I highly recommend that. In May, we will be offering a great giveaway of one free bottle of CBD oil plus two blister packs of the three strains that Urban Ice Organics offers – We'll be announcing more information about our giveaway on our Instagram page, Chronically Human Podcast, in the coming days. Thanks for listening, and let us know your thoughts about what it's like to live in chronic pain in America today.
1: Thank you, Josh, for being on the show today.
0: My pleasure.
1: Excellent. Well, I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the opioid crisis. And you are with the American... um, What's the group that you're with? I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me. It's, it's, it's a big name, and people mm-hmm. forget it. The mm-hmm. American Council on Science and Health. Okay, American Council on Science and Health. And what kind of work do you guys do there, and what's your position over there? Uh, we do a combination of
2: science and medical outreach and also debunking uh, bad science and medicine, especially as it pertains to public policy. So uh, we're a BS uh, detector and there's no shortage of uh, material ever because there's junk science just constantly and uh, uh, it it comes in the form of the so-called opioid crisis. Uh, It comes in the form of Uh, unnecessary fears of trace amounts of chemicals in the environment, or it can be artificial sweeteners or vaccines. Um, So anytime there's a fear out there of something that's just based on internet nonsense or uh,
1: people who profit by it, um, we jump on them pretty hard. I gotcha. I gotcha. And there is a lot of junk science out there, definitely. Now, you guys are a foundation, or what is the the structure of your of your outfit? We're a small nonprofit, uh, 501c3,
2: so basically a charity.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, are you guys, uh, just for my audience, you know, for their, um, um, for their information, are you guys, do you have a political agenda, or are you beholden to any groups or industries out there? Uh, we are intentionally apolitical. I don't even know
2: what my colleagues think. Yeah, once in a while you can tell, but we, we don't write about it because, first of all, we're scientists and doctors. So Mm -hmm. who cares about who I voted for? I, I mean, uh, it's of no interest to anyone. Mm -hmm. And if you start going political, you're going to lose half your audience. So, um, science is science and, if it's, if it's right and it's done right, we, we defend it. And if it's wrong, we go after it, try and correct it. Gotcha. Well, that's great. Term, I think that's important. Uh, yeah. In terms of beholden, no, we're, um uh, we're, we're small. We run a you know, we, we run off a, a bare bones budget. The place has been around 40 years. Uh, once in a while we get some industry money is an unrestricted gift, uh, not nearly enough, uh, it makes no difference um, yeah you know, whether we get it or not i've I've attacked our donors in the past for things that they've done wrong, so right uh but for the most part, it's just individuals uh who who are providing us with uh well more than fifty percent of our, our revenue, and then we've got some foundations that give money also so yeah, we're beholden to nobody. Although our reputation says quite the opposite. But we we have quite a few enemies, but they're enemies that uh stand to lose an awful lot of money uh because of what we're saying.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Well thank you for that. I appreciate that.
2: Sure.
3: I became
1: I became uh familiar with your work um, through Twitter. Um, you know, your Twitter posts and The work that you're doing on the opioid crisis, we've had on the show Dr. Thomas Klein. We've also had, yeah, he does great work advocating for pain patients and getting the truth out. And we've had Ed Coglin on with the National Pain Report. And we're hopefully to have Terry Lewis on pretty soon. She's doing a a huge pain, chronic pain patient survey. So Mm -hmm. that should be fascinating. And so your work is really great because you are one of the pioneers really getting out um, in front of this, with the public policy that's going on, that really led to my opinion in the opioid crisis, what I consider instead is uh, an opioid overdose crisis caused by the black market.
2: Or an op- opioid underdose crisis is just as accurate, because that's right. actually worse than than the overdose uh, crisis. Of course, mm-hmm. they come from two different types of drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, also um my, my first career, I was an organic chemist, and I did drug discovery for uh one of the pharmaceutical companies. so you get a lot of exposure to all all facets of drugs and toxic toxicology and metabolism and so um you yeah, put that together with the journalism work I've done in the last eight years, and I, I sort of know what I'm talking
1: about most of the time. Well, that's great. Well, that's why we have you on the show. Um, And just give you a little bit of background about myself. I've been chronically ill and chronic pain for 30 years. Uh, When I I was 11, I was diagnosed with a severe case of ulcerative colitis. And I had my colon removed at age 12. And since then, I've had 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays, hundreds of doctor visits, and I've got multiple autoimmune issues. So chronic pain has been a part of my life for over 30 years. So I really appreciate your work that you're doing is to get the truth out about the underdosing, and that is definitely part of this crisis as well. I think it's
2: by far the biggest part of the mm-hmm. crisis because, um, true that, um, that Oxycontin indirectly led to uh, what's really a fentanyl crisis now because mm-hmm. that's what's killing almost everybody, right? Um, And, you know, people have always overdosed on drugs, but there's just never been anything like fentanyl out there. Uh, So, you know, there was a a crack epidemic and a meth epidemic, and uh, this one's worse only because uh, fentanyl's worse. Mm -hmm. But worse than the overdosing is is the underdosing by far. Um, There's separate. They ought to be separate issues, but in fact they are—they're jammed together in a, in a really pathetic way uh, because none of it makes any sense. So I'm—I'm uh, I'm much more likely to be uh, on the side of the pain patient, ensuring that they get what they need, rather than worrying about people who are going to overdose, although they're both problems.
1: Yeah, definitely. They are both problems. And I think, too, that the uh, addiction community, those with the addiction, and those with uh, chronic pain are really in the same boat. They're underneath this um, huge bureaucracy that is giving a one-size-fits-all recommendation for something that is extremely highly individual, especially on the pain side.
2: Uh, even more so on the genetic side. And- I wrote a big piece on this so a year ago or so about why um morphine milligram equivalence is automatically flawed as a measure. It it, it it's it's throwing a dart with a blindfold blindfold on. It's a meaningless number. Mm-hmm. No matter what number you establish it's meaningless.
1: And you're referring to the CDC guidelines. Is that correct? That 90 morphine uh, yes, milligram equivalent uh, correct. that they came out with, it was a closed door type of situation that had heavy influence from one particular group that really has a bias against pain pills in general. But They have a bigger bias against me than uh, okay. they do against pain
2: pills. They, 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 they absolutely despise me. <laughs> um, and I've given them good reason to because you know, I can be pretty obnoxious on a good day. Uh, but uh, you know, we can get back to my obnoxiousness or, or the lack thereof at another well, time. Well, I did.
1: I did appreciate that you send emails from a gluten-free uh, iPad. So I do appreciate that.
2: Uh, I don't know if you read my uh, my interview with Kolodny, April Fools. I did. Yes, that was yeah. great. Yeah, that's but you know that's that's pretty good on the nasty side. I was I was happy with that one. So yeah, they of course they hate me, mm-hmm. but you know what? I got nothing to gain by telling the truth, except that I don't want to end up in that position after a car accident. I want my family to end up in that position uh, that some of these people like you were are in. So I have that to gain. Mm-hmm. Plus, I hate liars and and idiots and um so i kind of like program to tell the truth plus the, the 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 you can layer the uh the fact that law enforcement sitting in the doctor's office now like, yes w- 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 why is nobody concerned about this uh, uh, like the aclu is going am, am I used,
1: allowed to use obscenity on this show? Yes, definitely. Okay, yeah, this but, is a, I think it's an adult conversation about okay. adult issues, and I think we should be able to express ourselves um, as we see fit. I'm All a freedom right. guy, so I'm a libertarian. I believe people are free to do what they what they can, as long as it's peaceful and doesn't infringe on other people's rights. Okay, well, because I was born with soap in my mouth, let's just. Yeah. Uh,
2: but uh, so. Um, I was talking about the ACLU going batshit about who goes to what bathroom. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we've lost the right to have private um, treatment, and um, uh,
1: it's really about—I think—privacy as well. I think yeah, privacy yeah, is a huge, a huge issue that nobody really talks about anymore. Well, it's not just privacy;
2: it's it's unfettered privacy. So right. The re- the relationship between your doctor and you is none of anybody's business. Uh, it was bad enough when insurance companies started poking their nose in there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but 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 having the DEA and the DOG in, involved in this this is
1: this is Stalinist
2: Russia in some ways.
1: I, I would. I totally agree with that, Josh. I'm reading a book now called Nazi Doctors and the role that doctors had in the medical killing and the genocide. And it's frightening to see parallels with the ideology and the, the disrespect and the dehumanization of certain groups of people. It's
2: uh, like this is the United States. Uh, in in 2019 where if you happen to call a woman Miss, you get your Adam's apple ripped out. Um, But it's it's okay for uh, your own doctor to be too afraid to write a prescription that you need.
1: Like, the world has gone nuts. It has, Josh. And I think this boils down to, like I said, I'm a libertarian. I think that In this book, the Nazi doctors, and I I know Nazis thrown around a lot, and a lot of people have issue with the correlation. They might think it's hyperbole. But one of the the phrases that really stuck out by the author, it was written back in the 70s, was biological socialism. And that biological socialism is the idea that the individual doesn't own their body or their mind, and and it's to be disposed of at the will of the state. And I think a lot of those ideas are starting to trickle down into the doctor offices, and into the lives of patients. I don't think, uh,
2: I mean, I wouldn't say that that was the original intent. Mm -hmm. I think it just morphed into that. The original intent, and who knows what Prop came up with and why they had anything to do with CDC or or that knucklehead Frieden. uh, You know, that story will be told someday by someone. but let's just suffice to say that um you know my sock knows about as much about pharmacology as that whole that whole group. They know nothing.
3: Right.
1: They don't know
2: about drugs. <laughs> they don't know about chemistry, toxicity, pharmacology. So you had like the the fifteen stooges in there making up policy, which they had no business making up anyhow, because the CDC does a very good job at tracking down diseases. Scheduling vaccines, uh, looking to prevent epidemics and uh, food poisoning. They're really, really good at this. But all of a sudden, they're, they, they stepped into this arena and it's just been a mess ever since. So, I think it was about 2010 when colotinia started getting involved. And things have gotten steadily worse with absolutely no improvement in any measure you could conceivably come up with.
1: Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that's very important because the DEA has come out and they've uh, cut production goals or production quotas of prescription drugs by 33% over three years. And we're in the third year of that. Decrease in production, and we're still seeing overdose deaths still continue to rise well, I would argue
2: that that's cause and effect. Uh, I say it somewhat tongue in cheek when I'm interviewed, but if if you threw buckets of Oxycontin in the streets of every city in the new york in in the country, wouldn't be surprised if fewer people died, <laughs> right. Right, it's the, the 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 problem in America today is the lack of opioids when they're needed, and that has both directly and indirectly led to fentanyl via heroin. And there's no question about it. That, and I can tell this story uh, about how OxyContin and its New formulation in 2010 led to uh, just a soaring rate of heroin overdose use uh, and deaths, and and then fentanyl came into the country around 2013 or 14 to fill a very lucrative market. So, uh, and then since 2000, and, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, they've. Cut prescriptions by twenty five percent, and total op- opioid deaths have gone up. I don't know two, three, four times since then. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not an association. That is cause and effect. It's both. And people, more more people are dying because fewer
1: pills are available. And that's with fentanyl. That is exactly true. And I, I believe in uh, what's called the iron law of prohibition is that the more dr- law enforcement cracks down on a substance, the producers who, who produce it are going to increase the potency of that substance so it makes it easier to smuggle. And I think that's a big part of the fentanyl issue.
2: Well, that's never happened before because you can't increase the potency of alcohol or cocaine or methamphetamine. Um you know, you can make more, mm-hmm. but it's there, there's never been a case before where you can take a pound of heroin and a little vial of one of the fentanyl analogs and have the same effects. Mm-hmm. So this is organic chemistry, and it, it's essentially what I did for 25 years, and that's new drug discovery. Only they're doing it without not quite the safety of features that were we were uh you know forced to use um to make prescription drugs they they're using human subjects as toxicology rats, so uh, that's not really like a
1: wonderful way to
2: keep people alive
1: and that's a good point about the fentanyl because it's not just fentanyl and that stuff too car fentanyl and the other the other uh, fentanyl-associated drugs as well as adulterants of who knows what that they're getting when they do buy in the black market? Well, yeah, I
2: mean, synthetically, they're all easy to make. Okay. So, so, you know, maybe if I had a lab again, uh, maybe two, three days to make a pound of fentanyl without any trouble. and then I then I stick up my briefcase and I walk out the door. So it's it's trivial to make this stuff. The analogs are maybe a little bit more difficult, but most of them are about the same. So this is really easy chemistry. So even the hacks over in China who are just churning this stuff out from labs and factories, they can do it. If it comes out a little impure, yeah, who cares? It's going to kill them anyhow.
1: That's true. That, that is probably the <laughs> way that they, they, uh, they think on that. Now, with the amount of work that you've done looking at the CDC statistics, especially that they came out, there was an op-ed that one of the, um, some of the people from the CDC wrote, I believe it was in, uh, don't have the date, 2017 or 2018. And then the CDC came out and said, Hey, that doesn't, their opinions do not reflect the opinion of the CDC. So even people there who are putting out statistics sometimes I don't trust anything the government puts out, personally. But, you know, it seems like that a lot of the data that's coming out is does seem suspect.
2: Well, I, I don't think it's fair to say that I don't trust anything that the government um, puts out. Because, as I said before, most of what the CDC does is excellent, excellent work. And... If they're tracking down a source of food poisoning or they're finding clusters of measles for the, um, caused by the idiots who all of a sudden won't vaccine, vaccinate their kids, these guys are great at this. So there was some faction of it. And this is, this goes back to Frieden and Coladney and whatever relationship they had or whatever. Um, it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that. This started when Frieden was the head of the C D C and all of a sudden Claudine's a big shot around the world, even though he probably doesn't know how to tie his shoe. <laughs> that
1: may be insulting, I don't know. It could be, it could be uh, seen that way by, yes, possibly. By, by some possibly possibly by some people. Now the 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 work that the C D C does on food poison and that sort of thing, I think that is definitely an important point on that. But why do you think that they that they went for pain pills specifically? Was it the OxyContin? Was there an issue with OxyContin? I've been on pain pills for over thirty years, and I was never prescribed OxyContin. So I've been prescribed just about everything else and taken you know everything from morphine to Dilaudid to Vicodin to Percocet and everything else under the sun. But uh, I was never on OxyContin. Was there something specifically different about that drug?
2: Well. What was different about it is I maintain and I back it up with plenty of data that it was, that was really where the, uh, the addiction problem began once that came out in 1996 Mm -hmm. because you, you you began to see the, the deaths and the usage of Oxycontin, which is um, Oxycodone, which is Percocet Mm -hmm. and the. A whole lot of pills were out there because of malfeasance by Purdue in uh, claiming safety data, and some people have already gone to jail for it and others are going to follow. And good, they belong there. And the doctors who ran the pill mills. So there are a bazillion Oxycontins out there, and some of them had as much as 160 milligrams of pure Oxycodone. Mm-hmm. So that's, what, 32 Pills, uh, th- 32 Percocets. Wow. So, without the acetaminophen in it, which is, you know, that, that's possibly more dangerous than, than the narcotic. <laughs> exactly. So, you got this amount of a uh, time release drug. And by the way, the theory behind time release is sound. Mm-hmm. Um, for most drugs, it's better to get a slow release. And therefore, you get a, a slow rise and an even slower fall in, in blood levels. And you don't get the spikes, the ups and the downs that you do when you take a pill every four hours. So the, the idea behind um, a, a slow-release um, opioid is, was a good one. Now, uh, uh, Purdue went overboard and said, you know, This is good and plenty. You can just do whatever you want with this because no one will get addicted. So, you know, we already know what they did or part of what they did. Mm -hmm. But then the real driver was when um, some people figured out how you can grind the stuff up. Mm. And that broke up the little tiny balls that the oxycodone was encapsulated in. And that was responsible for the time release. So, like some of those little tiny, uh, tiny pellets, or the, they're not even big enough to call pellets. They were dissolved, uh, designed to dissolve at different parts of the dig- digestive tract. Mm, so that that's gotcha. why that, that's where you get your time release from. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you take a mortar and pestle and grind them up, they break open, and all you're left with is oxycodone, and if you've got 160 milligrams of oxycodone and you're snorting it or injecting it, you're going you're gonna to get hooked fast
1: because that's a whopping amount of drug. That is a lot. That is a crazy amount. Yes. Now, get, getting back to the idea of the under-treatment epidemic. Now, you have a pretty good following on Twitter, and you have a lot of pain patients, I've noticed, um, that follow your work, um, and they look at your articles, and they leave really, really powerful comments on that. Are you seeing um a change in people responding to this narrative in the mainstream, or is it still just a niche inside the pain community?
2: No, I'm actually seeing the New York Times finally get it right after five years, <laughs> and then you and I'm seeing other publications, including ones I do either on my own or dr H- Dr. Henry Miller, who's my writing partner. And we've been out there in the Wall Street Journal and Newsweek, and, you know, we, we've been screaming about this forever. And, um, people are starting to pay attention, but your average American, thanks to the sloppy, lazy news, uh, you know, the media, still don't know what's really going on. But yeah. they're at least, at the very least, they're they're reading stories now that are entitled "Crackdown on Opioids is Hurting Pain Patients." So that's becoming part of the national consciousness, without any question. Well, that, the part that, that yeah, the part yeah, go that ahead. isn't though is that that the people who are on these pain pills to begin with were had almost nothing to do with what's going on today with all these overdoses. The, they still believe that doctors prescribe pills for people in pain. They took them, got addicted, and boom, which is wrong. The people who abused these medicines got in trouble, not the people who used them. And that's an important distinction
1: that is not out there yet. And that's exactly, I was reading some of your work, and one of your articles said that 1% 1% of chronic pain patients becomes addicted and when we had Dr. Klein on he quoted a statistic that 4 out of a 1,000 people have the genetic predisposition to opioid addiction and the the fear out there that everybody who takes a pain pill or who takes uh, more than 7 pain pills after a wisdom teeth gets extracted that they'll become addicted what do you think about that narrative that's out there currently
2: well I, I think Tom and I disagree uh on the magnitude of the genetic component. Okay. Uh, um I, I think I, I think he's speculating based on statistics and, and and he's he's definitely on to something, but I think it doesn't explain everything. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not if you're not one of those four uh of a thousand and you start to use uh oxycodone is a party drug, you'll get your ass hooked. Uh you might not be as susceptible as the people who have a genetic predi- predisposition. But you know, you you can't be scarfing down oxycodones four or five times a day and not run into trouble. Because your body is built to to build to build up a resistance, uh your receptors change, your metabolism changes, your tolerance changes. So, um, you know, th- th- that's where Tom and I have a bit of a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that he isn't right or I'm not right either. It could be both.
1: Gotcha. So there's a lot of unknown out there about addiction and the role that mental illness and there's there's the, a lot of other biological f- factors like how the liver Uh, metabolizes these drugs there could be a huge variance between individuals
2: well that's why I wrote the article saying that 90 MMEs or any number of MMEs is a meaningless number because there's so many parameters that govern blood levels and and with opioids there's a a higher variability than like with an anti-inflammatory and I, I've read you know, I found a reference that the highest number is a thirty fold um difference in the the liver enzymes that metabolize uh opioid drugs from yeah. one individual to another. So if you throw that in on top of um size, weight, uh previous use of drugs, it, it, it's absolutely impossible to define a fixed dose or, or a maximum dose because let's say 45 MMEs could be way too much for somebody and way too little for somebody else. So if you put a number on it, it's convenient the politicians can do
1: this. It's easy to enforce, but it's a bunch of crap. And uh, that's why you report on the bad science because they like you said, there's a lot out there. And I think with uh, with pain medicine as well, I've had a lot of experience with it. Um, you know, pain levels vary as well. That nobody is in the exact amount of pain from moment to moment. And if people have multiple issues, then they're going to have peaks and troughs of that pain throughout not only a day, but throughout the month as well. And so these requirements to have one prescription for only 30 days and be locked into that, I think is, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a one size fit all like you talked about. And what do you think about diet and pain pills, uh, have in common? Cause I, I think that if, um, I noticed that if I eat wheat or sugar and some other other things with pain pills, you know, it would affect the efficacy or the effect that it had on me.
2: Well, I, I can't specifically answer that. All I can tell you is that um, some drugs need to be taken on an empty stomach, and Viagra is the most notable example of that. Hmm. If if you, uh, I'm not talking about you personally,
3: <laughs>
2: if, if, if someone has a big meal and takes a Viagra, it's going to do nothing. Wow. Because it won't be absorbed. Mm-hmm. If somebody has an empty stomach, it will get quite a different effect. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are there are plenty of drugs where the bottle says take on an empty stomach or take with food. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what foods or or the presence or absence of foods uh, have any impact on how you're going to feel when you take the drug. But what I do know is. There are other factors that have a huge influence
1: on what's going to happen when you take the drug, and that's other drugs. Right, and that that polypharmacy issue is really important to talk about.
2: Uh, It is, uh, in that it can can make, well, let's just say it will likely make uh, a Vicodin more dangerous if you're if you're scarfing down a bottle of vodka with it i mean or, or you're taking ten valium uh sure i mean po- um, polypharmacy is one thing, but there's also uh it works the other way too um there there are dozens of drugs that if you take along with um oxycodone will slow down its metabolism because these drugs bind to the same uh, liver enzymes that would normally take apart the opioid. Mm-hmm. so the opioid goes scooting through the liver and goes hey well this is cool I'll just hang out in the blood for a while and the most obvious one is grapefruit juice
1: yeah I've had I have heard of that I have uh, um, heard about grapefruit juice and it, it can really affect a lot of different medicines
2: it does But there are plenty of other common medicines like Benadryl might be one, certain antibiotics and antifungals, which if you take together with an opioid, will give you higher levels and longer-lasting opioids. So like, I would never suggest to somebody who's being um, papered off that they would try that experiment on themselves like with grapefruit juice. Because it could be dangerous. On the other hand, if I'm getting inadequate pain levels, I might try it and say, you know, that, uh, you know, 30 milligrams of oxycodone on it sure works a lot better with a glass of grapefruit juice than it doesn't. Um, so, but you have to understand, I'm not telling people they should do this.
3: Sure. I'm I understand
2: te- that. I'm telling people that. It will have an impact on the half-life and the blood levels of the drug.
1: And that's an important part that I think is that information is not an admonition to go do the, these activities. I think the more information we have about everything is better, especially with medicine, and that, that people can, should be able to talk about these issues without being accused of encouraging people to do things that might be destructive. But on the other hand, they could be helpful. It just depends on the situation and the individual. Uh, just, And I'm just speaking for myself. If I was,
2: you know, I know a lot about drugs and pharmacology. Mm-hmm. So if, if if I was a, pa- a patient who had my uh, meds tapered down to the point where I was hurting, I would try to experiment with grapefruit juice and some of the common drugs to to see if it could prolong the uh, efficacy of, of the opioid, and you know I would do it with a little bit of grape juice grapefruit juice first, and I'd try a little more see if it did anything. I don't know what'll happen, right. but theoretically and pharmacologically, it should have an impact on how fast your body clears the drug. So I would do that myself, mm-hmm. figuring well, you know. Um, my life kind of sucks now because I hurt all the time so I'll try something that might be risky Um,
1: and I I think that's that's a great point Josh about the risk reward profile and the individual choice that's what I advocate for is individuals having as much information as possible and then making that informed choice and then living with those consequences and the choice of somebody who's miserable and in pain Who's laying in bed, who's been cut off of pain meds and can't live, you know, their risk reward profile is totally different from somebody else.
2: Of course. Um, you would never take a single cancer drug if you didn't have cancer.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right.
2: That's a great point. Um, so, but, you know, the information about how to potentially prolong, uh, a painkiller. Is secondary to why anybody should be forced tapered. Who and the hell came
1: up with that idea? And and it's really a, an issue going on in Oregon right now where they're having a committee meeting with the Medicaid patients to taper basically everybody off of pain medicine yes. who are on Medicaid. And I I look at that as draconian, cruel, and I think it's really based on the same idea that those individuals are what the Nazis were termed uh you know useless eaters that's what they turned people who were were who meant for destruction in the gas chambers and i know that that's maybe hyperbole and a lot of people won't won't uh, won't like that but at the same time ideas have consequences and ideas lead to these things what they're doing in oregon is based on an idea that those individuals don't have enough value to live a better life with pain pills
2: I don't know i I don't know the impetus behind it. I don't think it's there's an evil impetus behind this. I think there's there are people who are opportunistic, people who are ignorant, people who wanna get reelected, people who are just ideologues and idiots, and of course both um And, you know, I don't need to mention any names or anything. So I think the the effect in Oregon might be similar to what you talked about, but the intent can't be. But it's still still bad. I I wrote an article comparing it to the Tuskegee experiment with black men and syphilis. That's a great point. It's really much closer to that Mm -hmm. because they were at least doing let's call it in quotes, research to see what happens if you withhold antibiotics from black men with syphilis. Well, you know, it's not really exactly all that ethical research. But, right. You know, and who knows what the uh, the uh mindset was uh, for the person who came up with it. But at least it was, Well, look- they were looking for some kind of answer in a terrible way. Uh, I see it more like that. Um, Oregon is experimenting with poor people to see how they do on other drugs, especially ones that haven't even been approved for pain. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, it's not as evil as the Nazis, and it's not as evil as Tuskegee, but the end result is, you know, not all that different, at least in concept.
3: Yep.
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, with the Nazis, they had this medical air to, to, um, what they were doing as well with especially the mental patients where they would do, um, experiments to see how much food, um, what they would do is they would have this special diet that had zero fat in it. And in three months, the people would be starved to death and then they would dissect their brains. And there was that research element to you, to that. But I understand exactly, exactly where you're coming from. And I like the Tuskegee analogy as well. Now, what do you what do you think about the claim that long term opioid use has not been proven effective? That's something that's thrown out there quite a bit.
2: Oh well, that's bullshit. Uh, words, wordsmith, wordsmithing, um, you know, it has not been proven that I can't grow wings and fly to Neptune. Right. Uh, so. This it has not been proven is a very different statement than than evidence shows that opioids don't work for more than a year. That's not what they looked at. They mm-hmm. looked at experiments that up to one year and they said, Well, it hasn't been proven that they don't work for longer than a year or it hasn't been proven they don't work for longer than twenty years either. Right. So that that's a bullshit uh you know, that's a bullshit experiment. Uh that and that's that that's meant to deceive. And you know, that's you know, th- that's the prop attitude where they're using half truths to convey something which the news will pick up and people will say, Well, they don't work for longer than a year, so why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. guess what? They work for longer than a year. And I'm little evidence
1: that it does. Yeah, <laughs>
2: so. if they bothered to do the studies, they'd say they worked for a year and five years and probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that is, that's kind of like an evil statement.
1: I, I agree. I think there is, I think at the very top, I think there are some people who have sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies that they don't look at other, they can't uh, empathize with the state of other people. And I think if you... Um, can look at somebody and say, you don't deserve pain medicine, or I'm going to determine by law how much pain you have to suffer. That's no different than directly torturing somebody, in my opinion.
2: Well, the result is, but the reasons are different. Um, There's money at play. Mm -hmm. There's there's politics at play. Because I've written about how, you know, once the governor started signing legislation saying, you can't have more than ten days killed, and then the next governor got has to look more badass, so he cuts it to seven, and then the next one's trying for three. So mm-hmm. this, this is just like you know, really transparent. Um, you know, elect me again because I'm I'm really tough on drugs, and most of the people think, you know, well, that's true. Got to mm-hmm. cut those drugs off because this stuff is gonna it's gonna kill America. So. Their political ambitions, there's definitely money behind it. They're academics whose careers depend on this. Right. Because they're, if they're wrong, then everything they've done for 20 years is wrong too.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They're egos, and they're morons. So they're <laughs> like, you know, it, but they're not Nazis. I got gotcha. You know, they could be some sociopaths in there. Right. But, um. Well, oh, I think they're—it's uh, kind of like half ignorance and indifference, and half agenda. If I just had to guess. Gotcha.
1: I, I think that's how these terrible systems work too. Is that people at the top—they're the fanatics—and then they move the bar of what's acceptable in society, and those people who are under that institutional umbrella. Uh, There is that indifference. There is that desire to keep their position. There is that desire to keep face and to advance in life. And uh, I think a lot of times that leads to uh, what's going on in Oregon and other places uh, as well. You've talked about PROP. Now, that's Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And they have an interesting relationship with a university that's really pushing the prescription drug monitoring programs. Have you looked into that at all? Not so much. Um, That
2: is more policy and politics, less science. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the name is wrong. I I renamed them a while ago. Physicians responsible for opioid prohibition is what I call them now. It's prop. Um, I'm disappointed that didn't catch on a little
1: bit more. That's the first time I heard it. I'm going to start using that. I like that. Please do. Yeah. I'll give you credit, too. Okay, that's fine. But, yeah, I think that, uh, have you looked at the numbers on prescription drug monitoring programs? Personally, I think that the pain management system is more and more based on our criminal justice system, where it's like you are been convicted of a crime and you're actually on parole, and that you have to go once a month, you have to lay open your medical history to people um, who are not your doctor, and you also have to pee in a cup every month as well to be in the program. And personally I I have a huge issue with the prescription drug monitoring program I think that's an equivalent to medical spying. Have you looked at any of the numbers the the studies that have shown that pres- prescription drug monitoring programs are actually effective in helping to combat opioid overdose deaths which is what's being claimed? Uh you
2: know what I I it's just not something I've really uh focused on. I mean, the idea of it is atrocious. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, Do you make me pee in a cup to get a Prozac, right. or or a tetracycline? Yeah, mm-hmm. they've carved out this thing with 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 these pain drugs. It's kind of a puritanical um, approach to you know you, you know you, you're 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 uh, an addict. You know you're you're an addict. You know, you're like a dirt bag or whatever. Uh, so we're gonna keep a really close eye on you. And it's for your own good, wink, wink.
3: Meanwhile,
2: people are slogging down alcohol, which is killing a whole lot more people than any pill ever did. So, uh, but that's okay. It's fine to drink.
1: It's not, you know,
2: if you want to get high with a a Percocet, that's not so fun.
1: What's the difference? (laughs) It is a big difference, and I think there is a puritanical religious type of atmosphere to it that we like to have enemies in society, especially if you think of it on the tribal level. We like to have the other, the people who are going to threaten our way of life, and I think that uh, pain pills have definitely filled that role for the last uh, five or ten years. Now, what do you see as far as going forward? Do you think things are getting better, or do you think the pain management system is going to stay the way it is and? you know, the more heavily monitored programs are going to be put in place? Or do you think that doctors, general practitioners who normally, who were on the front lines of pain forever, are going to get back to prescribing pain medicine uh, to their patients like they did before?
2: Well, this is going to be very tough to break. Okay. And part of the reason is the AMA came out with a wonderful position paper two years late. Right, where were they two years ago when this was going on? Um, If you read what they wrote, it's all dead on. But they were quiet for a long time, during which time uh, enormous damage was being done to people. So this thing is actually, and this is an educated guess, but I think the unintended consequences of this are going to be completely crazy, and. That's going to be in the form of marijuana.
3: hmm
2: Because you heard it here. Your next major drug issue in the United States is going to be marijuana. Oh, really? Yes. Is that
1: and, um, pushing back against legalization or pushing for it?
2: Well, um, I, I'm not pushing for it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. but what I am saying is it gets a free pass because okay. it's got a got a reputation as safe and healthy and organic and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe 30 years ago it was, but the stuff that's up there now is very strong, it's very addicting, and it does brain damage to people. And that's been given a free pass. And there's going to be far more people in trouble for marijuana than any opioid ever. Hmm. Wow! Go go forward five years, you're going to see addiction clinics for pot that that just dwarf anything
1: you're seeing now. Hmm. So very, very interesting. Yeah, I haven't well. I haven't heard that yet. I've heard some people say that it will lead to schizophrenia, um, but you know I've I've seen both sides of that debate. But I haven't heard that we're going to see a huge intake of uptake of Addictions. Are we seeing that in Colorado and different places where it's already been legalized?
2: I, I don't, can't speak for Colorado in particular, okay. but I and I don't, don't quote me on this, but mm-hmm. I read someplace and it, this could be wrong, so just take it with a grain of salt.
3: Okay, is
2: that there more marijuana addiction facilities than opioid now? Mm-hmm. I had a hard time believing it, and I'd have to fact check on that. I got you. But I understand. It also it also wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I got it, you. so everything. Uh, it, it, this is like Westworld. Yeah. Um, not, everything's crazy. Uh, you, you can't get a Sudafed in Walmart without giving the driver's license to the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Because that is crazy. That, yeah, because that Sudafed is going to be converted by no one into methamphetamine. <laughs> a hypothetical no right. one, yeah. <laughs> right. And then they have a shelf of, of enough alcohol to, like, run Cleveland for a year and keep the place warm. So and tobacco, too. You throw tobacco you know, I mean, on the of that, of so course, and then yeah. there'll be marijuana at some point.
1: So like, what's
2: wrong with that picture?
1: Well, it is interesting about how pain pills have really dominated... Um, you know, the national consciousness for the last five years, and I don't think it's going to go away any any further. You talked about the money involved, and one aspect that I've been researching lately is the amount of government or taxpayer money that is being doled out um with the opioid crisis, and it goes across the government too the u s d a is getting tens of millions of dollars to open up clinics and to create telemedicine um capabilities in rural rural America. The, the, um, U.S. Defense Department got, I think it was $1.2 billion to fight drugs around the world. And an interesting thing about their efforts recently, um, they lost $500 million in Africa trying to fight drugs. So I'm not really confident uh, that they're going to be spending that, that money wisely. Have you guys looked at any statistics on the government side of the opioid crisis and who's benefiting on that side?
2: Uh, out of my uh sweet spot. I guess um again, more policy, less science. So I i, I kind of stay away from it because you know, I, I wanna know what I'm talking about when people interview me. Sure.
1: And, yeah, uh, I totally you know, understand. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well as far as what would you say to pain patients right now who are struggling out there, who um I know that's more of the policy side. But where would you send them to find more information about the truth about the opioid, so-called opioid crisis? Because I know my family and I, we've educated quite a few people who have that knee-jerk reaction that we need to lock them away inside of a vault somewhere and not give them out ever again. That they come around and see the human side of this, the human cost. Um, do, you, do you recommend any of your uh, specific articles um, that they can find you, or is it following on Twitter is the best way to find your work? I recommend all of my articles. <laughs> you should yeah. definitely um, just
2: go to our website, which is acsh dot org.
1: Okay, gotcha. Acs, gotcha. We'll get that in the show notes, and we'll get that yeah. on there. And, uh, and before we uh, no, go ahead. up,
2: you'll see I've written two, probably two thousand articles. Um, let's say a hundred have to do with opioids, maybe 200. Mm -hmm. hundred. not
1: be hard to find. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Well, I really appreciate your work on that, Josh. One quick thing before you leave. You know, I personally opted out of the uh, pain management system, and I've done that using Kratom. And I know you've written some articles about Kratom. Um, What are your thoughts on that currently, and has the science shifted one way or the other about it?
2: No, but the risk-benefit has. Okay, and I wrote an article, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, it said Kratom will, will kill Godzilla. <laughs> okay, last I heard, there was no Godzilla.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the point I was making was it was being sold as an herb or an herbal supplement.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's
2: not. It's a bunch of drugs together of different compositions and potency, you don't really know what's in there. So, it's not a safe, ground-up parsley or anything like that. It's far from it. It's a real drug. And, I, you know, I say what you will about the FDA, but uh, I know that the uh, advisory panels, of scientists and doctors, And you work very hard to determine whether a drug ought to be out there or not. And most of the time, they get it right. It's not perfect, but it's right. Mm -hmm. So unless you have some kind of evaluation, uh, you really don't know what the hell you're getting. So that was the reason I said, Kratom is a bad drug just to be taken, especially if you think it's a dietary supplement and therefore harmless. Because it is full of plenty of uh, psychoactive psychotropic compounds in it, and it definitely has the potential to do damage. Many years later, I wrote that I was wrong about kratom. Uh, not because it had changed at all, but the situation had changed, and now people who are facing either intolerable pain or going to the streets to get heroin, which is fentanyl,
1: mm-hmm. Kratom's looking a whole lot safer now. But so the drug didn't change the situation good. I got you. Well, I appreciate that that view on that. Personally, I take it, um, you know, it's been very helpful for me, and I've done that risk analysis, and I urge everybody who considers taking Kratom to do their own, do your research and find out, you know, for yourself, that if you think, um, you know, if it makes sense or not, because like you talked about the situation I think is dramatically changed. I think people should be able to access what they desire in order to help them feel better. And uh, I think it comes down to personal ownership and personal rights and inherent rights. Um, And so I do advocate uh, definitely for that. Well, I appreciate your opinion on that, Josh, and, and you're looking into that. And you're taking a look at the other side a year later. Most folks won't do that And and I thank you for your work that you're doing on the opioid crisis. I think it's very, very important because you are cutting through and showing what is fact and what is fiction. So, Josh, thanks for being here, and I urge everyone to check out Josh's work, and we'll have all his contact information in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter and check out his 2,000 articles because they're filled with a lot of great stuff. Well, thanks for listening today, guys, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.